I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show so many so many so many damn books let's do it let's start the podcast okay hello everybody and welcome to so many damn books i'm christopher i'm drew and we have seth Joining us in the damn library today. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Thanks, Thanks for coming. Thanks so much for joining Thank you. us. Um, so Seth is a Canadian cartoonist known for his Palookaville series, as well as uh, designing covers for the Complete Peanuts, uh, the Lemony Snicket prequels, New Yorker covers, and more. And he's here to discuss a book 20 years in the making, Clyde Fans. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, so thanks for thanks for coming from Canada just for this. That's really oh, nice of you. <laughs> it's always um, nice to get to New York. Oh yeah. Well, we like to be an excuse. Speaking of New York, there's this is a very New Yorky cocktail. Is it? Yeah, I guess it is. Um, it's. Um, I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> as, oh yeah. Yeah, as we do. Okay, so this, um, I was trying to think of classic cocktails for this, um, and mm-hmm. I was also told by uh, Julia over at John and Quarterly that um, that you only drink red wine. Pretty much. So I was thinking, like, okay, I wanted to make a red wine cocktail, which I haven't ever made before, and I found this one in um, the old Wardle- Waldorf Astoria bar book by um, Albert Stevens Crockett. And so this what a uh, great name yeah, came no out kidding. That's it, perfect. <laughs> it came out in 1935, this bar book. And um, I think I know the book, actually. Yeah, it's pretty famous. Yeah, it is pretty famous. And they released a, a, an updated version a couple years ago. Um, but so it's it's a r- red wine, rum, lime juice and simple syrup. And I made it just as the um, the book says to. And it was it's three times the rum than the wine. <laughs> which is Ooh. just like oh god yeah. Yeah. so i i modified and it's uh it's a little bit more understandable <laughs> and the red wine is really the star of the drink do modern cocktails have less alcohol in them than the old mixes or does it vary it, it varies it's more like um i just think rum must have been different then or something because because <laughs> like it's it's not like we we do actually um we serve bigger drinks now mm-hmm. like a three martini mm-hmm. lunch was like you would get like a two ounce martini okay. and now we serve like a three to four ounce martini so it's a it's like a mm. people were definitely drunken but less drunk <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so that's i'm calling it um bishop fans because it's a cooling drink it's a sort of spring drink even though it's red it is wine. refreshing yeah and uh yeah. the pinwheeled lime i think kind of looks yeah. like a fan yeah yeah so that's <laughs> it does it makes me think <laughs> of no, the front of nice. the slipcase yeah. uh-huh. that's a good point good touch 
Thank you. So that's the drink. Nice. Thank you. It's a good one. Should we talk about what we bought? Sure. That's the next part of our show. Do you want to talk about something that you bought, Seth? Okay. Well, I was I just went home very briefly in the middle of this book tour. And uh, by coincidence, I happened to be able to go to a big uh, secondhand book sale mm-hmm. that I almost always miss every year because it's usually at the same time as this big comic festival in Toronto called TCAF. Mm. Anyhow, I got to go to it. And I think I bought, well, I probably bought 30 books easily. <laughs> I mean, no shortage. But the big book, that two books that I was most fascinated with... Um, one was I got a really big, beautiful book on uh, Japanese gardens. Cool. From And I like to play a little game when I get a book, which is I look at the design of the cover and I say, what year was this published? Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, okay, 1983. Open it up, 82. So there you close. go. I always love it when I'm cool. like, close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the other book was a very stuffy book called, um, the other one that was of interest, what was it called? It was called like something. It wasn't called the Trollop Reader, but it was about Trollop. Oh. Mm-hmm. And it was about whatever it is, Barchester County or mm-hmm. whatever, whatever the setting of them is. I've only read one book by Trollop. But this was so British, so <laughs> stuffy, so like perfectly like 1959, you know, like going on and on about uh, it was very twee. Cool. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I must have this because <laughs> even if I never read the rest of the Trollope books, this is like just so perfect. And yeah. it was beautifully illustrated too. Oh, that's really nice. Nice. Yeah, I haven't read any Trollope. I read one in college, but I cannot think of which one it was. Yeah. I just read his first one, The Warden. And mm. it was pretty good. But they say uh, whatever the next one is called, the, the stall, no, not the stalls, of the Towers or Bart, Barchester Cathedral, something mm-hmm. like that. Anyhow, uh-huh. it's supposed to be the great one. Yeah. And people who love Trollop love Trollop. Yeah. I'm, getting, I'm getting old enough that I think it's time to, like, you know, go that way. Yeah. Well, it's a great last name in general. Mm-hmm. True. <laughs> um, All of you Trollop fans out there, let us know. Let yeah, us know yeah. what we should read next. Yeah. yeah. Only, <laughs> I think there's only six novels. Oh, so there's... Oh, that's good. So yeah. it's pretty accomplishable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Drew? Sure. I have two very brand new things. Uh, one is a a subscription actually to a new literary magazine called visions mm-hmm. that Robin Sloan old guest of the show had recommended in one of his newsletters that he's his email newsletters that he's publishing this year, but it's a new literary sci-fi magazine mm. and the first issue, it's all super beautifully designed. They built a new typeface just for the book mm. and it's about visions of home, whatever that means past, mm-hmm. present and future, but through that sci-fi lens, which is really cool. Interesting. And then similarly, uh, science fictional, but a little scarier, there's this <laughs> British publisher called Visual Editions, okay. and they have they used to be publishing books, and they've shifted more into the digital sphere, but they just did a, a print-on-demand experiment, where there's the, the experiment is called We Kiss the Screens, and you go to the website, and you sort of scroll through in multiple directions to read different iterations of some myth from Ovid's Metamorphoses. I don't actually know which one. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then at the end of it, when you're done, you can plug in your your address and they'll send you, I think this was for the first 250 readers, so who knows if they've run out yet, but they'll send you a print-on-demand version of the whole thing with the pages that you specifically read in a different color. Oh, weird. Okay. Yeah. So That's it's, really weird. It's by this woman, Taya Uglo, but then with George A.I., 
which is the the UI, I guess, that went through and managed to do this thing. It's a it's a weird experience. That sounds cool. I've just sort of flipped through it to see that, and it's it's startling to know that a they printed it on demand, and b no other copy is going to look like mine. Yeah, it kind of hints at what could be coming in the future for print. Yeah, mm-hmm. where it's super geared towards you or mm. su- you know you can just do what you like yeah. right and it's like not like down to a print run of one so yeah mm-hmm. that's yeah, it's, interesting it's wild christopher how about you um so i have been um i have a lot of art instagram accounts that i follow mm-hmm. and there was this one um that she had a day where she was just posting um nicole clavalu um uh, art and she's a um uh, a French comic artist, and okay. I and I got the her book, The Green Hand, and other stories. And The Green Hand is is a um, a short story about a, a a woman with a good green thumb, like a she's a good gardener. Oh, and it's uh it's strange because it can it's really phantasmagoric and wild. And she was very influenced, um, I suppose, by the by the Beatles' Yellow Submarine oh, okay. um, oh, animation. Cool. So it's if you can imagine that. But she goes for between like beautiful fairy tale to monstrous, terrifying. Do you know images. who published this? Um, I don't quite because I'm trying to remember if I know it. I think I know what you're talking about. Um, I think I've seen a promo for it. Yeah, I don't. Re- I don't remember who published wild. it. Yeah. yeah, it's really. I'm very. Um, I'm very. I read the first. I read that first story, and I just. I love the art so much. It's very striking. Um, yeah. And it's because I've been reading um, comics. Like I, I haven't been able to stop after we were after uh, reading <laughs> Clyde fans. Um, I, yeah. I, I it put me in the mood for it, and I just am so excited to talk to you about your book. Well, um, comics are a great medium. I mean, they're. It's funny. Um, it's like I read less comics than I used to. Okay. I mean, it's just we go through phases, right. but. I would say, like, the great thing about comics is they are, like, uh, a world easy to dive into. Like, mm-hmm. when you pick up a book, it's very immersive. And yeah. if it's a good cartoonist, you mm-hmm. get sucked in pretty quick. Right. Uh, that definitely happened with Clyde fans. Um, I mean, I read it in it? a day. Do you That's w- great. Do you want to tell um, our listeners what Clyde fans is about? Yeah, Clyde fans is one of those things that when you describe it, it sounds terrible. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because basically it's about two old men. And their lives over five decades, roughly, as uh, electric fan salesmen slash businessmen, and sort of about the decline of the business, and and but more about, I guess, the interior worlds of these two men who sort of failed to make it in the world, mm-hmm. um, who are isolated figures in two different ways, in conflict with each other, and and basically the whole book for me was like describing these two men and then eventually bringing them together and then seeing the ramifications of their lives. Mm-hmm. So it's like on one level, I mean, it does sound terribly boring. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd like to think that what's really going on is kind of an exploration of that that strange interface between inner and outer that we all have, the, the world and then our interior reality. Yeah. 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 Um, and it really... It's like comparing and contrasting their two um, uh, approaches to life. Mm-hmm. I mean, Abe and, and Simon, they live very, very, very differently. Um, ca- can you talk about the inspiration of it? Because I love it. Uh, that It's a, it's an interesting inspiration story. Yeah, well, I mean, it's funny. I mean, um, I'm sure you know this too, like from living in New York. Um, 
and it's more true in New York than it is in Toronto now, is that there's a lot of old storefronts around. Mm -hmm. And certainly back in the late 80s and early 90s in Toronto, there were more of these kind of old storefronts that you'd walk by all the time and really not pay that much attention to. I did notice this place in Toronto um, before I really looked at it, and it was called Clyde Fans, and it was a fan salesman shop, or fan sales shop. But I noticed it because it had a very nice hand-lettered, uh, hand-lettered and painted window that mm-hmm. said Clyde Fans. Nice 1930s, 40s, bold lettering. But I, you know, I didn't particularly notice it until one day I'd stopped and decided to peer into the office itself. And as I looked in, I'm pretty sure they were already out of business at this point. Mm-hmm. Or pretty damn close. <laughs> uh, and it was dark. And inside was what you'd expect of one of these mid-century offices. A few desks, a couple of fans, some rotary phones, and on the back wall, two portrait photographs that I could see dimly. Uh, Black and white, typical business portraits. Two men. Now, I couldn't remember at this point what those men actually looked like. (laughs) But in my mind, that struck me as evocative. And I thought, who were these men and what were their lives? Mm Mm-hmm. Now, it took me a couple of years till I started working on the book. So during that period, they, they went through a variety of scenarios of what I would make a book out of. At one point, I even think I was thinking of doing it with anthropomorphic characters, I think, of dogs or Whoa. something. I don't know. <laughs> but but I was just sort of fishing around for ideas. And eventually, like any book, when you start it, there's a moment where you start it that sets it in place. Mm-hmm. You have your ideas, and then you roll from there. And that process of figuring out who these men were was um, that what I worked on for the next 20 years. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Although that's really kind of misleading because I pretty much knew what I was doing within the first month of working on the book. Mm. And then it was 20 years of execution. Wow. So could you talk a little bit about that that timeline? Yeah. I was mm-hmm. reading the, the afterword and you sort of mentioned that this you had originally thought this would be your second book. Yeah, and yeah. It's very, it's very much not. No, no. It's it's now. It's like well, it'll be a career defining book, but it's not. It doesn't hold the same place that it would hold if after twenty years you did a book. Right. It's funny. It's like it is the second book. It's just that the nature of comics, um, is that for me at least, I serialized it. Yeah. So it was serialized through my ongoing anthology project, Palookaville. But in the same time that I was working on this, I turned out many other books. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't plan for it to go on for so long. I really thought it would take about five years because the book before it took three years. Mm. So I figured it would be a bit more complex, take five years. <laughs> but it kind of just took on a life of its own. And I suppose on, on some way you could just say I wasn't working very hard enough because, <laughs> I mean, it shouldn't have taken 20 years. But it's not like I worked on it every day for 20 years by right. any stretch. I worked on it a few months a year. And it came out whenever Palookaville came out, and it plodded along. Mm. At some point at around 10 years, I was like, I couldn't believe it had been 10 years, <laughs> and I was ashamed that it was 10 years. Right. When people would say, like, when's Clyde Fans going to be done? I would be like, oh, soon, because <laughs> I was, you know, I, was, I felt bad about it. But then eventually I realized when I got to about, like, 15 years or maybe 18 years, I was just like, well, this is the reality of it. Right. It will be done someday, yeah. and someday it will be a finished project, and it will be a kind of a weird project because that span of 20 years means that the beginning of the book and the end of the book are going to look quite different. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. Nothing can be done about it. And um, in the meantime, there were many, many other projects going on at the same time, and I just realized that I just had to face it. This was going to be that strange project 
that took 20 years. There was no real logic in it, right? but that's what it was. It's a, Donna, it reminds me of a Donna Tart quote that I love because um, she was doing her tour for the Goldfinch and, someone, and it took her 10 years to write it. And someone asked, you know, why did it take 10 years? And she yeah. was like, well, I've noticed that when you're not enjoying something, it's usually because you're trying to do it too fast. That's interesting. <laughs> do you, does that speak to your um, experience writing this book? Yeah, I suppose so. You know, the truth is I didn't feel, at some points, I didn't feel pleasure or displeasure working on it. Mm -hmm. It was just a process. Right. It was like time to work on some Clyde fans for a few months. <laughs> and I always felt engaged with it. When mm -hmm. I returned to it, I felt engaged with it, but I, the pressure to finish it slowed down as time went on. Mm -hmm. I was not concerned. I started to look at it like, I think maybe I feel this about all my work now, which is that it's all just part of a body of work. Mm -hmm. And that it doesn't really matter. Like, you're going to be dead. <laughs> and, and all the stuff you did in your life will just be that body of work. And I knew that the final audience for Clyde wouldn't say, I was reading this for 20 years. Right. Most of the people would be like, I just bought this last week mm -hmm. and I read it. And they, they won't think about the history of it. It won't mean anything except to the few like comic uh, supporters who stuck through the whole project, mm -hmm. who, I, who I feel very sorry for. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's no chance they could have kept clue with what was going on in you know, that whole process. Right. There's something wild about the the watching your style develop. Yeah. It does change. If it was a prose novel, what's interesting is you probably wouldn't notice it so much. Mm -hmm. Because it's like and and it it might still be obvious if you really studied a prose novel that took a long time. Right. You might say, "Oh, I can see where this changed." Mm -hmm. But with drawing style, there's almost nothing you can do about it. It changes on its own. I mean, you're evolving, you can't help it. You follow a thread mm -hmm. and it leads you somewhere. But even if you tried to stop it, you can't do it. It's mm. funny that there's something in the way the hand works that it like it for, it makes its own decisions. When I went back to try and correct the book at the end to fix things up, there was a few things I wanted to fix in the first chapter. They could not be fixed. Mm. I could not draw a panel huh. that looked like those panels. Wow. So I did some manipulating. I did some Xeroxing and moving things around. But <laughs> but I could not draw like that anymore. I, it's interesting. I probably could have faked another artist better than I could have faked my own work from wow. that period. That's wow. interesting. I didn't understand it anymore. Right. Whereas I could look, I could sit down and look at like Charles Schultz or something and say like, okay, I think I can take a pen, figure that out, do the shaky line, whatever. But with my own work, it was like I looked at it and I was like, I could no longer understand the mental process that had made those decisions to draw these drawings. Mm. Wow. Can you talk a little bit about drafting a comic page? Because like it seems like. I don't know. I, I was I was so moved by how the pages sort of revealed themselves. And uh, That's very nice. I was just sort of I, I don't know. I, I thought that you used silence and silent panels so well and um, so strikingly. And I, does that come out in the first draft? Like, do you? It's interesting. There is no first draft in right. comics. It's a funny world. First of all, silence is very. Um, deliberate, of course. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the um, I'll do a quick digression and say that. One of the reasons why I like to use silence is because cartoonists never had any opportunity to use silence in the past. You, it was a, a very commercial oh, medium. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so you'd get an uh, editor would say, like, we'd like you to do a story on something. You've got three pages. Well, mm. in three pages, you don't have any room for silence. You've got to, 
it's like it's very you had it like the the medium has been was held back by the fact that it was a perfunctory medium meant to tell stories in a business oriented way for children or for whatever mm-hmm. and you didn't have a lot of space uh but in the modern world a cartoonist can have as much space as he wants mm-hmm. and so if you want to have three pages of a character just walking down the street you can and it's interesting how much potency that silence has in a story. Yeah. Because mm. we're not used to that in comics. I mean, it's no different than in a film. If suddenly you're watching a film and the, the director decides to have a long sequence that has no dialogue or and even no music, yeah. it's like that, ha- that takes on like a real potent quality mm-hmm. because yeah. we're used to a lot of bombast. Yeah. I was just watching a great old film the other day called The Subject Was Roses. Hmm. It was a, made from a play... Really, it was a really great film from the late 60s, mm-hmm. but there were two trema- uh, tremendous sequences of the main character wandering around alone, but they put a Joan Baez song over them. <laughs> <laughs> that Joan Baez song, was, was like, I have nothing personal, Joan, but <laughs> right. it was killing that sequence. That sequence needed no music. Huh. It was funny. It was like the music was telling you how to feel, and it undercut the whole point of silence. Yeah. Right. But anyhow, getting back to discussion, discussing how a page is, is uh, created, it's interesting. Like, you don't write a script, generally. You mm-hmm. can write a script, mm-hmm. but mostly what you do is you, know, like you write notes of what's going to happen. So it's like you, I had extensive notes for Clyde fans that told me everything that would happen for the whole 20 years. So I would review them and say, like, okay, we're hitting chapter three. Let's see all these notes I've written right. to refresh my mind. But when you sat down to actually do the pages, you might type out the dialogue so you have an idea of the dialogue but you wouldn't like figure out how they're talking to each other or anything just so you have like a kind of a rough thing over here Mm -hmm. and you would do a very rough little thumbnail where it gave you a chance to like lay out how the movement works in the pages so this little things how the panels flow because it makes such a tremendous difference in a story whether you have three panels in a row or two panels in a row they have Mm -hmm. a time signature to them Mm -hmm. if you have a full page drawing after like a bunch of small panels it suddenly it's like it's kind of like staccato meeting a long note yeah Mm -hmm. it's very interesting how it like there's an unconscious rhythm when you read that pulls you through it's very musical in a way Mm -hmm. so you work that out and then you start drawing the actual pages now when you draw the pages and this is the hardest thing to explain is the drawing is the writing. Mm -hmm. So when you're actually drawing, it's like things are created on the page, connections between images, and it's hard to say it, but like ideas come to life on the page. And the best description I've found is imagine you wrote some lyrics and then you put the music to it. Mm. Drawing is putting the music to the lyrics. That's when it comes together. There's something strange. It doesn't always happen. Sometimes it's boring. Sometimes (laughs) it's just like guy walking down the street. Hello, how are you doing? But other times, like, suddenly you discover there's something in the sequence you didn't know was there until you started drawing it. It might be some character in the background who steps forward Mm. and changes the nature of how it works. It might be the, the graphic arrangement on the page that makes something mean more than it did. It's, and it's always in a two-page sequence, too, because the pages relate to each other graphically. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of complicated. There's a bit of magic in it, and it's, I'm not entirely sure that I always know what's going on until I draw it. Mm-hmm. But when I, there's a lot of spontaneity in there. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So it's a funny experience. Mm-hmm. 
it seems like your work explores melancholy um even even in um connect your connection to charles schultz and mm-hmm. working on on the complete peanuts collection it seems like that's something that you're always working on like why are, why are comics good for that because i mean yeah, peanuts did it i think they are scale. good for it mm. it's funny you wouldn't have thought that like if you were to talk to somebody in 1975 because then you'd said they would have said comics are great for fantasy mm-hmm. they would have said nothing better than like it's like there's no other medium that could show someone flying around and going to the moon right Movies have now proved that's wrong. The mm-hmm. movies are better than comics for showing people flying around, etc. <laughs> but the funny thing is, is I think they were wrong. I think comics were actually really good for intimate things because mm-hmm. they're a small medium. They're a little. They're a very intimate medium that, like prose, it's best experienced alone. But even more than prose, it can't really be shared. You can't read a comic to anyone. You can try. You can say like, oh, oh, I saw this great comic and in the first panel he says, and then she says, there's something really awkward and horrible about that that does not transmit the experience. There's something about when you look at the drawings and and the words together, they form in your mind together Mm. and create some kind of an experience that can only be felt alone. Mm-hmm. And when you read it, and, and there's some, to me, it seems a very perfect medium for expressing the interior experience of characters. And I do, and, and maybe this is just my experience, but I think that the interior experience of life is sad. Right. <laughs> it's like there's a melancholy overview, uh, like kind of over, overlay that hangs over all of life. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that everything's grim. Melancholy could be kind of pleasing in a way, too. We've all had like a sad afternoon where we walked around and kind of enjoyed being full of grief. Yeah. 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 There's Good a, grief. A, right? a, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good grief. There's a quote that my dad uh, said to me a lot when I was a kid. And I'm, I'm, I want to say it's like Thoreau or Whitman, mm-hmm. but uh, the massive men lead lives of quiet desperation. Yeah, Thoreau. Yeah. Thoreau. Yeah. And this. I mean, it like John Williams's Stoner is another book that sort of fits into like yeah this idea of just a life, and it's not it's not sad. No, it's not terrible, right? No. But there is that quiet desperation. I think it's very true. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. I think that generally, I like to feel sad. I don't mm. like to be depressed. There's right. a very big difference. Mm. But sadness is kind of pleasing. It's like you're picking at something that's kind of beautiful and sweet. At the same time that it's sad. Mm-hmm. It's like the way that if you see, like, um, it's not, there's certainly nothing, um, you don't feel this when you see some person in genuine suffering, but you feel it when you see some old building that's falling down. Right. Kind yes. of as, it's like, oh, well, something is passing and something's going from the world or, uh, you know, the ghost of the past, whatever. There's a variety of, like, tr- uh, sort of pat answers. Mm-hmm. But I do think that that is, um, there is something pleasing in melancholy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's that great sequence in the book um, that that sort of pulls back from I think it's Simon and it's just the the countryside as like the the barn room that you're that's falling down and the mm-hmm. house that he passes by and I I think that uh, I don't know I think that I was moved by that as much as the things that were happening um, to the characters. Uh, well, I'm glad to hear that. I think progressively I feel more that way myself. Yeah. I feel like that there's a generalized, well, as you get older, too, there's a generalized feeling of the world disappearing that makes something about the landscape itself has a quality that is 
incredibly evocative as you get older. Mm -hmm. I think that when you're younger, maybe you just don't look as closely at things. Mm -hmm. You're more in the world. As you get older, you start to be out of it a bit, and you start to feel the textures of the past more strongly. I think about it even now in New York. There are times when I'll walk down 4th Avenue on my way home from the train, and you can see the skyscrapers of Manhattan way in the distance. Yeah. Downtown Brooklyn, sort of in the middle distance. And in the short, it's like one little hotel, <laughs> a U-Haul, yeah. yeah, and and nothing else. And there's something that always feels a little bit melancholy about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. But I've never, I've never seen that represented in a story before. Yeah. Increasingly, as I get older, I find the more mundane details of life are the most profound. Mm. Talking about like a car rental place at the end of a street is like couldn't be more mundane. And somehow that has like a greater kind of melancholy beauty to it than like, you know, some art deco edifice somewhere. Yeah. There's Mm. something strange about like the prosaic quality of human life because maybe it puts you in, in your spot that, you know, your time is limited. You'll pass like the millions of people that have passed before you. And it's like we all think we're important, but of course we're not really very important. Right. It's like even the most important of us will fade out in a hundred years tops. Right. Mm. Can you talk about um, why picture novel over graphic novel over yeah. comic book? Mm. Yeah. It's not an interesting story, but I'll tell it. <laughs> <laughs> when I first did my first uh, graphic novel, I hated the term graphic novel. This uh-huh. was when it was first rising up, and I thought it was a pretentious, stupid name. I thought that it um, it fell into the category of, like, you know, kind of, we were ashamed of the word comic book, so we came up with something fancier. So I just decided to make up a funny name for my own books, which I thought was picture novella, I thought was extra pretentious. (laughs) (laughs) The funny thing about it is not a single person has ever got the joke. Everybody thought I was dead serious and was just trying to come up with my own pretentious name. And over time, I used it two or three times. And then um, maybe I even forgot it was a joke. (laughs) So when I did the Clyde fans, I wrote in, I wrote picture novella. And my editor, Tracy, said, it's really too big to be a novella. You should, what are we going to call it? And we went through a bunch of stuff. And then I was like, what about picture novel? Picture, mm. it seemed obvious. And she was like, okay. And it's funny because I, well, I just couldn't put the words uh, graphic novel. Mm-hmm. But I have given up on that fight. I don't really care about the word graphic novel anymore. That's a battle lost. Um, the word <laughs> is graphic novel now. And right. it's a good word because everybody knows what it means now. Right, but right. when it first started, nobody knew what it meant, and I just thought it was a, an abomination that wouldn't stick and that we'd all be embarrassed <laughs> by it. Yeah, it was something, it was either that or sequential art. Oh, even worse. Oh, yeah. even worse. Yeah, no, they're weird. all terrible. Picture yeah. novel works for something like Chris Ware's building stories yeah. in a way that graphic novel doesn't. Yeah. yeah. I must admit, like, picture novel does have a bit of children's book sound to it, too. Mm. It's slightly off, but I'm stuck with it. I'm happy with it. It'll, <laughs> it'll do. Uh-huh. Yeah. Another thing that I've noticed about all of your work um, is that it's super designed. I mean, it's very much the look is as is of course is as important as the story. Um, and this is it's gorgeous. It's a slipstream cover. Just... Um, can you talk about design the design and and? Yeah, it's interesting. Designing comics has been a long time coming. Like when you look back at like the history of comics, there's a lot of great, co- beautiful old comics, mm-hmm. and you can be very th- uh, blown away by the great lettering and the covers, whatever. Yeah. But it wasn't planned that way. Those were products no different than the great lettering on a box of Tide or Bold or something. Mm-hmm. It's not until maybe the underground comics that you start to see 
a true sense of indi- individual design. You see somebody like Robert Crumb making his comics to look a certain way, hmm. and that's the, probably the first true inkling of an artistic idea of using design to set the audience for how they will feel about the book when they read it, hmm. which is really pretty much what book design is. Right. So in the 80s and 90s, when mostly we the comic cartoonists of my generation were just working with, as we call them, somebody calls them, not me, floppies. I hate, <laughs> I hate that term, but that means comic books. Uh-huh. Um, you had a cover and a back cover and two end papers. That's all you had is design. Mm-hmm. Then when the graphic novel kind of took hold, suddenly you had a lot more design to play around with. So basically, I grew increasingly interested in design through the 80s and 90s because, A, I could see how important it is what a book looks and feels like when you pick it up on how you're going to read it. Mm-hmm. It's tremendously important. And two, I just got really interested in design, too. I Design, it's a beautiful way to look at the world. Right. I, uh, the more you're interested in aesthetics, the harder it is to understand that there are people who go through life never thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. every element of life is like something that is either well or poorly designed. <laughs> right. And you're aware of it, but most people don't um, have a visceral reaction. Like when they're, they see a sign that doesn't make sense, they don't say, that's bad design. They mm. just get confused and, oh, I get it. But... I do think like the human experience is design because everything is symbols and everything we do is interpretation. Mm-hmm. I mean, as I'm sitting here looking at you, your facial expressions, your haircuts, your clothes, the room, everything, the, the words we're using, this is all like stuff that we interpret and they're, they're, they're items that are designed so we'll understand each other. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I'm creating a book, I'm concerned with two things. One is mood and two is beauty. So I really want to create a product that like an object that you'll hold in your hand that will like make you feel um, a visceral reaction to it before you even get to the story. Mm -hmm. That's why there's so much introductory material in the book before the story starts. I think there's like a 40 page sequence in between the half title and the title page. Mm -hmm. Years ago, uh, Chip Kidd told me that... um, the space between the half title and the title page is the designer's opportunity for poetry. Now, I never forgot that ooh, ooh. because usually that's two pages. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I've been slowly increasing that page count book by book yeah. to get as much stuff in there so that by the time the story starts, you've got like – I've kind of like spelled out the mood mm-hmm. for the story to begin. It's kind of like um – in in a movie when they have like the entire like a beginning mm-hmm. and then the, the title card yeah. yeah yeah that's yeah. all exactly i just saw vice the other night mm. and there mm-hmm. is i think there's a half an hour until the word vice comes up yeah right? and i was like i'd forgotten that the title hadn't appeared when it came up i was like wow yeah I, somebody told me i think that uh the departed has the longest time before the title card comes up, and it's like oh, yeah. almost an hour into the movie. <laughs> wow. But at That's that great. point, it's like, did you forget? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I like that kind of ballsy move too. <laughs> I, I uh, I'm a big Charles Schultz fan, and I'm mm-hmm. just curious about where, uh, how how that project started for you. Where that where that? Yeah, it started by luck. I mean. <laughs> I'm a big Charles Schultz fan, of course, enormous, like probably my premier influence. But um, in the 80s and early 90s or whatever, uh, Fantagraphics Comics uh, was doing a lot of great books. And they published this magazine called The Comics Journal, 
which was primarily the mo- only serious publication about comics um, and certainly alternative or underground comics. Gary Groth was the publisher, and I got to know Gary briefly during that period, not really deeply, but um, at some point in a phone conversation, we were talking about Schultz and how much I loved his work, and I told him, like, God, if there was ever, a, you know, a complete reprinting, mm-hmm. I would love to do it. And he called me, like, I don't know, about a year later and said, we're doing a big interview with Schultz. Would you like to do the cover? So I did. And then, like, Schultz died sometime shortly after that. And then maybe a year later, he said, um, you know, we're going to try and get the rights to the complete Peanuts. Would you like to design it? And I feel like this is the kind of thing it wouldn't have come to me if it hadn't the personal connection. It's like it's not, right. there were lots of cartoonists interested in Schultz. It's not like yeah. they would have picked me out of the whole world and say, you should be doing it. But it was like that perfect thing for me. I still can't believe it happened because I love Schultz's work so deeply. When the opportunity came up, uh, um, I was ready for it. Mm-hmm. I already knew what I would do with that book. There was right. no doubt. Yeah. I had it pretty well planned in my mind before when that moment hit I just basically sat down and designed the books wow cool and then I presentation art we I flew out to California we went to visit um, Schultz's widow Jean Schultz Mm. and um, I was ready I had my spiel you know my all my art to show and I was expecting uh, I was going to argue for my vision (laughs) Um, but she was uh, she was great I mean the minute I met her I knew that she uh had, she thought her husband was a genius, mm-hmm. and I knew that she. Um, I'm not sure the instant we started talking, it was clear. But by the end of the talk, it's like uh, I knew that it was going to work out. Mm. And it's uh, after that, it was, I would say, like a miracle job in the sense that uh, this was peanuts, which is a billion dollar industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, besides one qualm at the beginning, uh, they never once made a single change in 12 years of working on those books, wow. which is unusual yeah. in the world of publishing. That's yeah. so crazy. Yeah. And the only change they made was I wanted to have Charlie Brown's face on every volume. And at that point, we were going to do 50 books right. instead of uh, cutting that in half into 26. And they were like, well, I don't know. That's like people might not know which, you know. So they were like, maybe we should have different characters on it. And I kind of knew this was coming. <laughs> but, but I was like, okay, let's do it. So besides that, though, they never made a single even like suggestion. Wow. It was remarkable. That's so cool. So it went great. I, I loved it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it was a meaningful experience for me to work on that because, um, well, I love Schultz. Mm-hmm. But even more than that, um, it was an opportunity. This is to mystically connect myself with him through the books. Mm. I felt like I was like, if he'd been alive, they wouldn't have needed me to work on the books. He could. It's like I wouldn't have right. even. I'm not sure that would have worked out. Right. But it was like I loved his work so much that it was my opportunity to like sort of like have some sort of um, experience with him. Like I'm taking his work. Like the way you take a diamond and then you build a setting for it. Mm-hmm. So it allowed me to somehow like connect with him in some way. Wow. Yeah. That's great. so cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, something that I've noticed about your work in Schultz and, and, and the book that you brought us is um, that there's this gulf between what you can imagine versus what you can express. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see that in comics, like especially the idea that I mean, when you first look at a comic book, you're like, oh, this is exactly what I was meant to see. Like, it, this is how they imagined it, and there it is. Yeah. But, like, no, there's... A, especially when you can see the art change over the oh, course yeah. of the book, mm-hmm. yeah. you can see that that's not true. No, of course uh, not. 
And it never is. It, it never is exactly no. as you imagined it. And and uh, you brought us Virginia Woolf to the lighthouse. And um, I just noticed that like that's all that book is. It's <laughs> yeah, like, it's pretty true. What what made you uh, suggest to the lighthouse to discuss with us? Well, I suggested it because it's an easy suggestion in that it's probably my favorite book. Mm. Cool. So that's like the go-to answer right there. It's like somebody says, what book would you like to talk about? And it would be to the lighthouse. <laughs> but why is it my favorite book? That's a good question. I would say that because it is um, kind of what we were talking about earlier, which is it is such a profound attempt to discuss that interior, exterior experience mm-hmm. as human beings. The characters in it, specifically Mrs. Ramsey and, and Lily Driscoll, are struggling to um, deal with that strange world of communication. And yeah. they're constantly... It's interesting, too, because it perfectly maps how we change our opinion about this stuff almost from moment to moment. Right. Mm-hmm. We're connecting, we're not connecting, I'm ang- I hate you... It's very interesting how the characters try to negotiate that. And it's also interesting, um, again, we were talking about mundane details. It's very small, mm-hmm. very small book. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the beginning of it is just them planning a possible jaunt. Yes. And then, like, eventually sitting down to dinner. Yeah. And that's the first 120 yeah. pages. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it's a rich hundred pages. It's interesting how much stuff happens in that. It's also, I mean, I've read it so many times, it's hard for me to go back to the first time I read it, but that's mm-hmm. a confusing read initially because a lot is going on. Oh, yeah. And you don't know who's who. And much like regular life, there's a lot of changing perspectives of how people feel about each other. Yes. Um, I actually uh, switched between reading it and I listened to some of it. Um, Nicole Kidman reads the audio book. Oh, I haven't heard that version. I know cool. the, I have an audio book I love by Juliet Stevenson. Oh, oh cool. Nice. She's, she's great. Yeah. Um, and it really helps to hear cause some of these sentences, they're very, uh, long. They do drag on. <laughs> and, um, and, there were things where I would listen to something that I'd read and realize, oh, like that was actually someone else's perspective thinking about yes. how they feel about someone else. And so it's, it's an interesting... She asks a lot of the reader. Yes. Mm-hmm. She really does, which I appreciate. But it, it is one of those books that you realize, like when you're reading it, you're going to have to read it again almost immediately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not an easy read that you're going to like say at the end, oh, well, there we go. Got that. Never have to do it again. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's possibly why I've read it so many times is that the first couple of times through, I had a strong sense that I didn't really know what was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This was So this was my second read. I read it for the first time maybe six years ago. Mm-hmm. And I've... I had that experience with Mrs. Dalloway. The first time I read yeah. it, I was like, I don't think I like this book. I can't. Yeah. And then I was forced to reread it to write a paper about it. Yeah. And it suddenly it unlocked for me. Yeah. And this time there's, uh, to, I think to this day, it might be the most astonishing thing that's ever happened to me in a book when suddenly that the little middle section, where yeah. suddenly we we're going to rock it forward in time. Mm. I just, it, this time I found myself trying to, to, prepare for it yeah and and it still astonished me sort of in the way that that the last chapter of clyde fans does that's very nice where it just it all of a sudden you're thrown out of everyone's minds into this cosmic thing and then dropped back into it and for a brief moment you sort of get to glimpse everything oh yeah no that middle section is like just astonishing yeah it's you don't see it coming 
Yeah. And yeah. it's uh, it has like a totally different tone than everything that's come before it and everything that comes after too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is very cosmic because of course it is all about time and like the frailty of human life, the characters pass yeah. without any great like uh Trumpets blaring. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Ramsey's death is like in a parenthetical. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a. Bl- you're so surprised when it shows up. Yeah. yeah. It's like he reaches out her hand, his hand, and she's gone. Yeah. Yeah. It's you know, very powerful work, and it's it's interesting. I was reading a rereading a review in a, a magazine in Canada uh, where they did a section called rereading. Where mm. They asked people to reread something and then comment on it, and they were writing about to the lighthouse, and. Um, and I totally disagreed with this. They said that in the middle section, Mrs. McNabb, the cleaning lady, um, they said it was unfortunate that she was kind of a um, a bad, like, low-class stereotype. And I thought, I don't think I agree with that. I think I have as much sympathy for Mrs. McNabb as yeah. I felt for the other characters. Oh, she yeah. didn't seem like totally like, you know, a, a crazy cockney, you know, <laughs> cleaning lady or something. Right. She was She was a poor woman and... I, you know, I felt that she was presented with as much dignity as anyone else in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You feel, or at least I felt this sort of like, they, that they don't understand how much work it is to get this house back mm-hmm. in order. Like that they don't understand her life. Yeah. I, I definitely felt that. Um, and that sequence also, um, I think partially because I know I was going to be talking about the book with you. Um, it felt like a comic book. It felt like you could see mm-hmm. these sequences with like the, uh, oh, the yeah. brackets as yeah. like a pull quote or something Uh, Uh, to me i've like i totally love that sequence because we move away from the characters and suddenly we see the house as a character Mm -hmm. as it's starting to creak and fade and grow old and there's it's like it's it's poignant of course time has passed by and the house has been left behind and now they're going to come back it's like i that whole sequence to me is like a a series of empty rooms Mm -hmm. right it's very beautiful yeah um, you're not prepared. You're not prepared too for the kind of melancholy quality of the third section of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The first section is so full of life. Yeah, yeah. There's, the book's a series of surprising turns. Mm-hmm. Is what's interesting too. Well, I mean, that dinner sequence is one of my. That was. I love that. That that yeah. was a great sequence, and um, you're just kind of going in between these minds as they as yeah. as they change their minds about each other. I mean, it really is sort of. I was thinking. I have a note in here that says this is a novel about anxiety. Like there's so there's oh. so there is many. a lot of social stress. Yeah. yeah, as people are trying to like behave properly, while still trying fight to fight hard for their own identities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, Lily is particularly like a powerful character that way. It's heartbreaking when she wants to join into the the joy of Paul and Minta as mm-hmm. they've come together, and she's so uh, horribly rebuffed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But the scene that really hits me in the dinner sequence is when Mrs. Ramsey is watching the fruit in the bowl mm-hmm. and thinking how beautiful the arrangement is and w- hoping no one will take a piece of fruit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then the moment a grape is plucked, she's like, oh, why did it have to happen? <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because could you have anything that is less dynamic in a way than a bowl of fruit? Right. And yet she's added so much like... Um, of the strife of human life to it. It's, it's <laughs> tremendous. And that's sort of paired yeah. to the moment of, of um, Lily, like, realizing that she wants to move the tree. Exactly, <laughs> like, yeah. So, like, yeah. she has that thought process, yeah. too. Like, I I actually have a little thing that I need to do. And yeah. then I'll fix... And then she has exactly. this, like, this great... 
like excitement like I yeah know, i know how to fix my entire life but, yeah <laughs> i mean <Yeah>. my painting <laughs> yeah it's funny because the whole book is about small stuff like that and yet in the context of the book it's not small stuff right it's the big stuff of life which is probably what most of our lives really are like we're right. pondering this or that figuring things out i mean we've got like so much noise going on in our head that we're not focusing like i mean i feel like a lot of that the way the novel is written, too, it's like from one thing to the other to the other. Things are forgotten quickly, moved mm-hmm. on. When um, Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey are up in their room and he's reading the book again and mm. she's watching him and they're like sort of like jousting like psychically about like whether she'll say she loves him. Yeah. It's all very, very small. And yet you can't help but feel like, well, this really is what life is all about. Yeah. yeah. I read something recently when you had recommended this, I was I was going back and doing some reading too in preparation to reread the book. And somebody described it as the the most perfect depiction of a marriage mm-hmm. that they had ever seen. It Not is that it's a good, good marriage necessarily, no. but it's... It's interesting because it does go back and forth mm-hmm. as any relationship does. I mean, at the beginning, she's quite angry with him. Mm-hmm. Like, why is she hurting the child by telling him they won't go to the lighthouse? Yeah. yeah. But later when they're having dinner and she's thinking um, that something's missing from the dinner and then she realizes what it is is she's waiting for him to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because no one could be more welcome than his voice. Right. That's very interesting. I mean, we all go through that. Right. With, with our partners, we feel this like this dichotomy between like, uh, could you shut up to like, <laughs> I adore you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Loving her in the moment of watching her read or mm-hmm. it's just very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a, a, especially paired with like hers thinking like, I don't love you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Anymore. Yeah. There's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is wild to see. And Wolf is an author who I, I keep finding this as I read other books. Mm-hmm. And I see the influence, or I re I reread yeah. this this time, and I realized that there's a book, uh, Julia Pierpont's debut novel that came out a couple of years ago, uh-huh. um, among the ten thousand things. Mm-hmm. It does it does the time jump and then yeah. goes back, but it's it like it's definitely in conversation. Yeah, yeah. so many people are in conversation. With but I did you know I read that book maybe yeah. three four years ago, and it hit me reading it this time. I was like, oh wait a minute. And it's it's wild when you find those yeah. through lines. I I love thinking of the sequence like of Mrs. Dalloway to this mm-hmm. to Orlando. It yeah. just seems like no. It's interesting. You can read. I mean, I don't know the exact order of her novels, but there's a very interesting like progression of thought in how she's dealing with this kind of stream of consciousness. Mm-hmm. I just listened to an audio book of her first novel. What's that called? Like I've forgotten already. It's like something about going abroad or going out or something yeah. it's a voyage it's a mm. voyage uh, the voyage out the voyage out that's it and it, i was i was thinking i won't much like this it's the first novel it can't be very good <laughs> but it was really very good yeah mm. and a lot of what she everything was there it was already there mm-hmm. and then you you go through the novels some better than others i'm not a big fan of jacob's room mm-hmm. but or I wasn't even that crazy about Mrs. Dalloway, although I liked it better like you the second time. Yeah. But you do see like a thread on how she's trying to approach. Like, I think she's really trying harder than many authors mm-hmm. to say, like, what does life feel like? Mm. Yeah. That's the hardest thing to get into a work is what does life feel like? Because yeah. it's, it's not about objective reality. It's not about plot. It's like, right. what does it feel like? And that's a very, very hard thing to accomplish. Mm. You can see like, Catherine Mansfield at exactly the same time trying to do some of the same things 
but I feel like it's more ham-fisted than what uh, Virginia Woolf was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I like Can- Catherine Mansfield a lot, but they feel more like short stories, more like mm. stories, right. less like this rambling attempt to capture life. Yeah. 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 Which I suppose, I'm not sure, was she influenced by Joyce? Yeah, well, I, they, they, every, all of the writing about it seems to point towards that. Joyce, yeah. Joyce and, and Proust. Okay, yeah. yeah. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. But you know what? I will take Wolf over either of those guys. <laughs> yeah, I will as well. Yeah, I will as well. I just, I just worked my way through three of Proust's books, and I was like, I was going to go for the five, but I was like, three, I, I can't take any more. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe we should uh, talk about things we do recommend. Oh, yeah. Okay. Sure. Sure. Christopher, do you want to start? Oh yeah, I'll recommend. I'm going to recommend two things. Uh, one is um, if is uh, your book actually Wimbledon oh, Green. Oh, that's very nice. Uh, that's a that was something that I read after Clyde fans, um, and it's it's a crazy different sort of <laughs> yeah. type of book. It's it's a lot of fun, and it's about comic book. Cl- uh, Wimbledon Green is the greatest comic book collector of all time, <laughs> um, and it's really, really fun. Um, I highly recommend it. And then the other one is um, this really quiet novel, um, Girl Child by Tupelo Haasman. Um, it came out a couple of years ago, and um, it's funny. I bought this book, and I've had it on my shelf, and I saw that she's gearing up for a new novel that's coming mm-hmm. out, uh, mm-hmm. Gods with a Small G. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, oh, my God, I I can't let her lap me. Like, I can't, <laughs> I can't <laughs> buy one book of hers and then not read it. And she already writes a whole second one. <laughs> so I, I – and it's this, um, it's this girl who li- lives in uh, sort of ex- pretty – pretty extreme poverty in her in her life and um she's incredibly smart and she's uh, trying to live by the girl scout code she has a girl scout handbook but she, there's no uh, troop in her in her town <laughs> uh-huh. so she's ju- she's a girl scout troop alone girl scout they do it they there is a policy for that i know all about this oh really oh, wow. you can be the only girl scout or boy scout or cub in your town there's a there's a system for it no huh. way yes or there used to be i don't know if there still is well it wasn't wow. that wasn't yeah. in this but that's really um, <laughs> i love that um, yeah no i love it too can you imagine being the only cub scout can you imagine going to school in your uniform? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, this book sort of explores what it would be like for at least um, her, her. You know, her mom works at like the local roadhouse dive bar, and it's a uh, it's a it's a heartbreaking novel. And but there's a lot of stuff um, on the page of like there's redacted areas. There's um, there's she has oh. some sort of some trauma that you turn the page and it's just all blacked out. Like it, it's tr- she's trying, and some of the words are. Oh, interesting. Uh, unblocked. It's wow. really interesting. Um, I, I really highly recommend it. Cool. So that's mine. Seth, do you want to? Sure. Let me think now. What can I recommend? <laughs> um, well, first off, I will, I'll recommend a couple of things. One, uh, and maybe this doesn't even need recommendation because it was, uh, it's a comic that the first comic ever put up for the Man Booker Prize, mm-hmm. which is uh, Nick Dernasso's uh, Sabrina, mm-hmm. yeah. which was a fantastic book, fantastic graphic novel, very deep, very depressing, but very um, profound. Mm. And the real profundity in it was the slow, like where it comes out is the slowness, the measured tone of how this story was told. 
and you probably couldn't have a story that would be more timely than right now. Mm. It really captures the political atmosphere of what's going on in America mm. with the, you know, the strange divide between like the, the two sides, the yeah. political teams. It's very, it was a very interesting book. The other thing I might recommend would be the novels of Anita Bruckner. Do you know Ooh. Anita Bruckner? Mm -mm. I've never read any. Yeah. I, she died about two years ago, and I read her obituary in The Times, and, she, I, and I'd never heard of her. And she was referred to as the Mistress of Gloom. Which Ooh. I thought, oh, that sounds good, yeah, in a non-gothy way. <laughs> yeah. um, so I decided I would read her first book, her her man Booker, uh, or the the Booker Prize winner, which was called Hotel de Lac, and I liked it okay. But then I thought I'll keep going, and I read all twenty four of her novels over wow. the last two years, and um, they're great. They're a very they're all kind of the same, in that they are a story of a lonely woman uh, trying to like figure out her way in the world and. They're pretty much the Anita Bruckner story, uh -huh. but they are like, it's interesting to see somebody, it basically imagine somebody with a very small repertory cast who switches the roles book from book. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. And, and there is a kind of a mystic underpinning to them that is strange, but essentially they are gloomy books, but, but, um, revelatory. Let's mm. put it that way. They're worth reading wow. and they're worth, maybe you don't have to read them all like I did, but- where do we start? What's I would say, well, her best book maybe was one called Dolly. That was a very beautiful book. Mm. That's the American title. It had some other British title. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Uh, Drew? I, I can't stop thinking about this book. I read it for a work event. Um, I was putting together some panels with the Onassis Foundation at work about democracy and there's this documentary called What is Democracy that came out at the end of last year. I went and saw it at a 11 a.m. screening at the IFC in New York, and I walked out of it, and I felt like so the earth had shifted under my feet. And I reached out to the woman who created it, this woman, Astra Taylor, asked her to come do one of these panels, and she said yes. And then as I was doing my research, preparing for these conversations, I found out that she was putting out a book. And it's just come out. It's called Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. And it, good title. It is, <laughs> it's it's one of those books where, like on Goodreads, I haven't actually marked that I've finished reading it, even though I have read all of the words sequentially in the book. But I feel like I'm I keep going back to sections of it and grappling with it further. I don't I don't feel like I'm done reading it yet. Mm -hmm. It each chapter sets up a dichotomy or a duality that's great that is not right left but more like yeah. inclusion exclusion in the way that all of these things have to come together towards this hypothetical ideal of democracy that probably can't ever exist mm. and yet you know the stupid churchill quote about like it's yep exactly. the worst except for all the other ones exactly <laughs> yep no which really captures it yeah i mean i just i want everybody in the world it's not even like an everybody in america although yeah. Yes, please. But everybody to read it to be like, how can we grapple and reach a little bit closer mm. towards the thing that we all espouse wanting? Well, it sounds wow. great. Yeah. yeah. And it sounds just what's right at the moment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we need yeah. it. Wow. So on that note. Yeah. Um, to everybody out there, we always say the same things, but we, we mean them. One, please review us on iTunes. Two, you can go to our patreon.com slash smdb and you can support the show if you feel like doing that we appreciate when you do 
And uh, three, finally, um, go buy Clyde Fans by Seth. It's It was an unreal reading experience and i want everybody to have it yeah i mean it really it's totemic it's incredible yeah and thank you very much and thank thank you you for coming thank you so much for joining us no i had a good time thank you yeah thanks the cocktail was good oh (laughs) (laughs) hooray